your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, Welcome aboard. Coming up on the show today, we're going to have a quick little discussion on food dyes based on a question I asked this morning on the trivia show. And I do have a couple of guests today, researchers at the Goodman Cancer Research Institute uh, right here at McGill. And we're going to talk about some new advances in cancer research. But before we get um, onto that, uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, food dyes. The question I asked this morning was about the Southampton Six. And I asked, what crime did the Southampton Six commit? Well, the Southampton Six were not people. They're three different synthetic dyes that in 2007 were investigated by researchers at the University of Southampton, which of course is why it was called the Southampton Six, and uh, what they found was that it caused um, hyperactivity and uh, made attention deficit disorder worse in, in children. It was a study not without controversy. What the researchers did was they took six very commonly used uh, synthetic food dyes, namely uh, Sunset Yellow, Carmosin, Ponso4R, uh, Sunset Yellow, Quinoline Yellow, and Allura Red, uh, and in different mixtures, fed these to two groups of children, a younger group and an older group, uh, three-year-olds and then eight or nine-year-olds. The mixtures also had a preservative in there, sodium benzoate, which has also been uh, uh, claimed to have an effect on, on hyperactivity. The first thing I want to point out, that of the six dyes that they used, three of them are not available in Canada and never were. So it doesn't really apply to, to Canada here, especially because they didn't test these, uh, these uh, dyes independently. They tested them in mixtures. But anyway, it was interesting finding because they were able to determine by administering uh, tests to the students and by uh, questioning their parents and, and teachers, objective observers, they came to the conclusion that the dyes really did increase uh, uh, hyperactivity or, you know, basically uh, behavior problems in these children. As you can imagine, the manufacturers of these dyes took issue with the study, uh, coming out with all kinds of criticisms. But uh, the European Food Safety Authority uh, determined that there was validity to, to this uh, study and uh, suggested that uh, a warning be placed on all foods that contained these additives telling consumers that they had been linked to behavior problems. And of course, because uh, uh, manufacturers were reticent to put such warnings on, they decided that it was easier to just uh, eliminate those dyes and resort to some natural alternatives. And uh, in Europe, they, they did that. Uh, manufacturers got on the bandwagon and they started to eliminate uh, the so-called synthetic dyes from foods and replace them by various combinations of turmeric, paprika, beet juice, 
riboflavin, saffron, carotene, annatto, uh, caramel, uh, and uh, also uh, carmine, which is an extract of uh, female uh, cochineal insects, uh, iron oxide, titanium dioxide, because these were all listed as natural substances. You may find it surprising that iron oxide, which is really rust, and titanium dioxide, pigment in white paint, are classified as natural. But that is indeed the case because they do occur in minerals and soils, although with all the processing needed to purify them, their natural origin hardly seems uh, relevant. And of course, just because a chemical is natural does not mean that it is safer than synthetic. However, in the case of food dyes, there are certainly fewer health issues that have arisen concerning the natural ones than their synthetic counterparts. So uh, this move towards curbing the use of synthetics is, is justified. <clears throat> and uh, uh, manufacturers here have also risen to that challenge. Smarties, for example, uh, has switched to all natural dyes. Uh, I'm not a big fan of any kind of food dye. Why? because uh, these basically are cosmetic uh, ingredients and uh, they certainly have no nutritional benefit. Uh, in fact, uh, they may have a negative nutritional benefit in the sense that they may encourage children to eat foods because of the attractive colors. And uh, if you just think about you know, where the colors are used, uh, well, you'll find them in children's cereals, because producers have found that those sell much better uh, if they are colored. Children like when the milk that they use for the cereal becomes colored. Uh, you find them in candies, uh, of course. You find them in, in, in um, some jams. Uh, you find them in the sprinkles on, on donuts. In general, you find artificial dyes in foods that don't have too many redeeming nutritional properties. So. It's a good idea to try to curb the intake of, of dyes because then you're automatically reducing uh, processed foods. And, uh, you know, as we've mentioned many times before on, on the show, uh, processed foods uh, are contributing to increased risk of, of uh, heart disease, increasing risk of, of cancer. There are suspicions that even um, uh, Alzheimer's disease has a link to uh, highly processed foods. Uh, those links are, are not ironclad, but they all point in the same direction that, you know, we should be curbing our intake of processed foods. And uh, that means also in curbing the intake of, uh, of dyes. In the U.S., the um, uh, CSPI, the Center for Science for Public Interest, has petitioned the FDA to, to ban synthetic dyes. Uh, in their latest request, they focused on red dye number three. Red dye number three is, is used in Canada and, and it is used in the US. It's quite widely used. It's also called erythrocin. And uh, it is uh, uh, kind of a bizarre situation. In the US, uh, red dye number three is not allowed in cosmetics and yet it is allowed in food. And you wonder, you know, how, how does that happen? Well, it turns out that in the 1990s, some studies uh, done on rats showed that when they were given large doses of, of red dye um, number three, they developed thyroid <clears throat> tumors. 
And based upon that, the red dye was removed from cosmetic products where it had been provisionally allowed. Now, why wasn't it removed from food? Because in, in a very strange situation in the US, something that is on uh, not on a, a provisional allowed uh, list, but on a permanent allowed list, that is much more difficult to remove. And starting way back in 1907, red dye number three was judged to be food-wise a safe substance and it was put on a list of, of permanently allowed food dyes. And it's very difficult to remove that. There, there's the legalistics in, in, in the U.S. Uh, whether or not, you know, this link to cancer is, is you know, really uh, one to worry about is, is very hard to say because the animals were fed very, very large doses and the red dye is used in, in very, very small quantities in, in, in foods. But of course, one should ask the question, given that we're talking about a product that has only cosmetic value, why take any chance at all? Why not eliminate it? So I would be you know, in, in favor of, uh, of doing that. Uh, even though I'm not convinced that there's a real risk, but you know uh, there are plenty of, of natural uh, coloring agents available which have a much better uh, profile. So that's the story with the Southampton Six. Uh, it uh, caused a lot of stir when um, the study was published in the Lancet, which is a prime uh, British uh, medical journal. And as I said, it really was the the key to uh, starting programs both across the pond and here to replacing synthetic dyes with uh, natural ones. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break, check what traffic is like out there, and we'll be back talking about some interesting research in cancer. Cancer, what a terrifying word that is. Well, while the, there is no cancer epidemic, uh, cancer is an age-related disease mostly, but there are some concerns because uh, there seems to be a rising trend in younger people and people under the age of 50. So obviously, we need a lot of research in, in cancer. And uh, two of the uh, cancers that um, uh, we're going to talk about here, lung cancer, which is the leading cause of, of uh, cancer deaths in, in Quebec, more than prostate and breast cancer and colon cancer combined, and uh, brain tumors, which are especially frightening because the prognosis is so bad. Uh, patients don't live uh, longer than two years at most uh, on average with, uh, with brain tumors. Anyway, to shed some light on this, uh, we have a couple of guests on the line. Uh, Miranda Yu and Mark Soren are researchers at the Rosalind and Morris Goodman Cancer Institute uh, here at McGill. Uh, Miranda is a doctoral student in the Department of Physiology, and she works uh, under the guidance of Professor Daniela Quayle. And uh, Mark is an MD-PhD student 
Uh, he's in the Department of Human Genetics and uh, under the guidance of professors Logan Walsh and Jonathan uh, Spicer. So uh, Miranda and Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, I, I like to uh, start out by trying to get uh, a pretty simple explanation of what you guys uh, have worked on uh, in this uh, study that was just recently published in, in Nature. One is one of the leading uh, scientific journals in the world. And uh, I know that you know one of the, the real issues with, with, with cancer is to be able to determine uh, what treatments are available and whether or not the treatments have been successful and uh, uh, are more treatments needed? When is one you know, clear? And I know that uh, this is sort of the kind of things that you guys have been looking at. Uh, and when we say looking at, we're uh, talking literally because you have been using imaging techniques to look at tumors. So give us a little bit of a background on just what the technology that you are exploring is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So the technology that we use for both these studies is called imaging mass cytometry. So we use IMC for short. Um, and it really gives us, as you said, a really in-depth look at a patient's tumor. So we're able to take a small piece of the tumor after the patient undergoes surgery, and we are able to process and image these tumors to be able to look at over 20 different cell types within a single image. Whereas with traditional imaging techniques, you might only be able to detect up to three different cell types. So it's a very powerful tool, and because it uses imaging, we're able to um, apply algorithms um, developed by our amazing computational scientists, Elham and Morteza. Um, and we're able to ask questions like, which cells are interacting with each other? What does the overall structure of the tumor look like across different patients and across different cancer types? And how do these different spatial characteristics of the tumor relate back to how the patient does overall and how they respond to therapies? So basically you're, you're looking at a, a screen and you're looking at a, a blow-up image of the intricacies of a, of a tumor? Exactly. All right, so uh, in, in terms of, of determining whether or not um, treatment has been successful or you know, is, is there more invasive approach needed, uh, you can come to some sort of conclusion by just looking at those images. So um, the nature of the images that we look at is actually at the time of surgery. So this is before patients ever uh, receive treatment. But what's really interesting is that there, there seems to be inherent properties about the tumor at the time of surgery that can help us predict whether they will respond to therapy. And you're specifically looking at brain tumors, is that right? Exactly. Okay, where which unfortunately, as I very well know, have very very poor prognosis. Uh, does this, um, in any way, enhance the chance for a better prognosis? Sorry, could you repeat that? We're we're having a little bit of audio issues on our end. Okay, does the fact that you can look at a a, a brain tumor uh, close up 
right? And see what cells are involved. And I suppose whether or not some immune cells are entering the picture. Uh, does that give you a better idea of prognosis of how this will this tumor will evolve? Yeah, so so specifically for glioblastoma, which is really aggressive and patients do really poorly, um, we were pretty lucky to have a cohort of long-term survivors in our study. So these are patients that survived beyond three years, which is, as you mentioned, very rare for glioblastoma patients. Um, and when we looked into the tumors of those patients specifically, we found some really interesting things in, in the immune cells that were there. Um, specifically, we saw a type of immune cell called macrophages, um, which are typically associated with poor, poor outcomes. They're, they're kind of like the bad guys of the tumor when it comes to immune cells. But, but in these long-term survivors, we found a specific type of macrophage that contains something called MPO or myeloperoxidase. And, and this was associated with improved outcomes. So we're really interested in understanding these cells um, in those long-term survivors. Now, does does that have any potential clinical application? The fact that that you know that these specific types of macrophages are good in a sense. Yeah. So, I mean, in the clinic, there's definitely been clinical trials that have tried to target macrophages because up until this point, we've always kind of assumed that that these macrophages are the bad guys. But these these clinical trials that target macrophages have not been successful. So what we found in this study could partially explain why that's the case, that not all macrophages are bad. Um, and so right now in our follow-up studies, we're trying to figure out where exactly these cells come from, why do some patients have them and others don't, and can we potentially take advantage of, of these seemingly cancer-killing immune cells to um, improve patients' outcomes. Now, the, the samples that uh, you have been looking at, how, how are they collected? And how many different patients have you looked at? So um, on, on the lung side, uh, to give you an example, we looked at 416 different patients. Um, so one sample uh, from a tumor of 416 patients. And this size of the cohort really gave us the ability to combine um, imaging mass cytometry that Miranda just described with artificial intelligence to try and answer uh, a clinically meaningful question. Um, so as you alluded to before, we were really interested in, in predicting um, which patients after uh, lung cancer surgery were going to have a recurrence of their tumor. Um, and the reason this is important is because Right now, um, most early-stage lung cancer patients undergo surgery, and about 15 to 30% of them will have a recurrence, but we don't know who these patients are. So if we were able to predict who these patients were, we would be able to give them chemotherapy, for example, and try to cure them. And the patients that are going to be cured by surgery, we could simply observe them and spare them the toxicities associated with chemotherapy. Um, so this technology, imaging mass cytometry, together with artificial intelligence, allowed us to make meaningful uh, clinical predictions um, in terms of lung cancer patients. Now, how far along is this from sort of being institutionalized? That is, you know, from, from uh, generally having uh, samples of tumors of, of patients uh, be imaged 
to know, you know, whether or not further treatment is, is happening. I mean, because I know, I mean, so far, of course, this is still experimental, right? But how far from uh, someone being on the table and, and having surgery, uh, a sample being taken, imaged, and the surgeon being told what's going on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's something we're actively working on. Um, so just to give you an idea, right now, most tests that are used in hospital, uh, the maximum number of markers that they use, um, so by markers, I mean antibodies that target proteins on the surface of cells. So in hospitals, the maximum number that they use is three. Um, and the number of markers we use to make our predictions is 20. Um, and with 20 markers, we were able to have a 95% prediction accuracy in terms of which patients would have a recurrence of their cancer after lung surgery. And right now, what we're actively doing is trying to reduce the number of markers um, to a minimum that still has a high level of um, precision and accuracy when it comes to making these predictions so that it could be used in hospitals. And right now, with six markers, we're able to have uh, a prediction accuracy of about 93%. That, um, that so sounds uh, very significant. And I want to chat a bit more with you guys, but we've got to take a break for the news here. So hang on. Uh, let's see what's uh, going on in the world. And uh, we will be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. I'm chatting with uh, Miranda Yu and Mark Soren, who are cancer researchers at the Rosalind and Morris Goodman Cancer Institute here at, uh, at McGill. And they have just uh, published a paper in Nature, a top-notch journal, which describes a, a technique that may allow a better prognosis of what can happen after a tumor is removed during surgery because there's always the question of, of how quickly that tumor is likely to progress, whether further treatment is needed, et cetera. So that's really the, the goal of this study, which uses something called imaging mass cytometry. Now, I'm not familiar with that technique, uh, so maybe you can just give us a, a brief description of, of just what it is. Is it something like a super microscope or, you know, because I know that you're looking at images of, of the tumor? Um, so basically, the, the technology is a, is a machine um, that looks at slides. Um, so we're talking, about, we're talking about sections of a tumor. So a tiny piece of a patient's tumor, usually one millimeter by millimeter, uh, that is then put on a slide. And, and what happens is that the slide um, is stained with antibodies. Um, and these antibodies recognize proteins on the surface of these cells, allowing us to identify them. And what the machine does is that um, there's a laser that really pinpoints where these antibodies can be found on the image. So you not only get information about uh, what these cells are, so their identity, um, the nature of these cells, but you also get information about uh, the localization of these cells and where they're found in space. So it's this combination of both um, identifying a very large number of different cell types, but also knowing where they are in space. Um, that is really the novelty of this technology. Very good explanation. Now, what about uh, the cost 
uh, of this instrument? What what are we talking about, and roughly? So, so the technology right now is extremely costly, um, which is part of the reason why why IMC itself is not necessarily feasible for being implemented in the clinic right now. But it's an incredible research tool where we can extract a ton of information, and it can definitely help us, you know, discover other things that that could be useful in the clinic, such as um, the AI information we extracted from the lung paper, as well as this identify, identifying um, new macrophages in the brain paper. Well, roughly, I mean, what order of magnitude are we talking about in money? I mean, hundreds of thousands or millions? Um, so in, in terms of, of the cost of acquiring the instrument, as well as staining um, over 500 samples, um, it's it's under a million, but it's it's close to that amount um, in terms of the, the the actual cost of the instrument, all the antibodies, processing all the samples, um, and all of that. But as the technology quickly develops, this cost is um, dropping quickly, especially as um, there are many competitors in this field and many companies that are producing similar technologies. Um, so this is still very very novel. Um, but in a few years, we expect the cost of these instruments to, to fall. Now, how does uh, artificial intelligence fit into this? Um, so the way artificial intelligence comes into this is that the information that we gain from imaging mass cytometry is pictures. Um, so pictures of these tumors, where these cell types are located, what is the nature of these cell types. Um, and artificial intelligence is a great tool to be used with spatial information um, because we can use artificial intelligence algorithms to extract spatial features from these images that it can use to predict meaningful clinical outcomes. So I think it's really the pairing of artificial intelligence with imaging mass cytometry that is the novelty of our work. So basically, it is the feeding of, of numerous, numerous images into some sort of database from which AI can calculate based upon the data that has been input, what might happen in a new case. Is that essentially it? Yes, um, exactly. And, and just to give you a quick example, so we use two different um, artificial intelligence algorithms. So the first one only considered uh, the frequency of cell types or the number of different cell types without considering any spatial information, while the second algorithm considered not only the nature of the cell types, but also their localization and spatial interactions. And the model that considered the spatial interactions was able to increase the accuracy prediction by about 20%, um, which showed us that the spatial information where these cell types are found, what are they touching, who their neighbors are. This showed us that this information is important in terms of uh, predicting meaningful clinical outcomes. So as far as your research goes, what is the next step? So in terms of, of the next steps, like you alluded to before, it's, it's really trying as hard as possible to make this um, relevant for patients in hospitals. Um, so right now, the technology that we use is is very expensive, and the number of markers that we needed to make our predictions was about 20. So we're really trying to bring that down to a minimum, something closer to three. Um, right now, we're at a 
uh, accuracy of, of prediction of about 93% with six markers, but we're working really hard to find the best three markers uh, that can be used in clinic. Now, both of you are, are at a relatively early stage of your research careers. What are you planning to do? So Miranda, let me ask you first, what's, what's your, what do you see as your life's work? That's a great question. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out. So I'm, I would say I'm like mid PhD right now. And I really, really love doing research and trying to expand our knowledge about, about biology and about how tumors are formed and, and how we can potentially better treat tumors. So I think whatever I end up doing after my degree will still incorporate some, some aspect of research because I really genuinely love that. Now, Mark, you're, you're on a different path because you're in the MD-PhD program, which is not so easy to get into. So congratulations on that. Uh, how do you see your, your future in terms of splitting between uh, clinical practice and research? Um, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so, yes, I, I'm a student um, at McGill in the MD-PhD program, uh, which is a, a great place to train for anyone that's listening. Um, but I really hope to, as you alluded to, combine uh, research and, and clinical duties um, because I, I really believe that it's by seeing patients um, that you can ask yourself questions and that can inform your research. And then you go back to the research lab where you find solutions to these questions. So I really see um, um, an ecosystem of care that involves both research and um, medical care. Um, my hope is, is to split my time between the two. Um, maybe about 70% of the time doing research, about 30% of the time uh, seeing patients in clinic. Now, what, what kind of uh, clinical uh, work do you think you'll go into? Are you, are you looking at surgery or, or something um, else? So I'm, I'm really uh, early on uh, in my training, but um, something related to oncology, um, maybe medical oncology. I, I think cancer is a field where uh, medical care and research go hand in hand. Uh, it's a field that's evolving very, very quickly. Um, a lot of potential for new discoveries that impact patients. So I'm, I'm thinking of going into oncology. Great. Well, it's very nice to see young researchers like you guys uh, being so successful, getting uh, a significant paper published in Nature. Uh, it's going to be, you know, one of the first highlights of your your careers. It's, uh, it's always a memorable thing. And uh, thanks for bringing us up to date on, on what you're doing and all the best of luck to both of you in the future. Thanks very much Thank for being with us. Thank you very much. All right, uh, we're gonna take a break here. we'd like to have uh, modern miracles, uh, especially when it comes to, to cancer and uh, uh, cancer research progresses by small steps. Uh, unfortunately, there are no giant leaps here, but we heard uh, one of those interesting uh, small steps. 
but there's another disturbing area of, of, of cancer, and uh, that is the infiltration by, by quackery. Because, you know, whenever science doesn't have the answer, uh, quacks uh, rush in to fill the void. And unfortunately, I, I have some experience with that because uh, when my wife was diagnosed with glioblastoma, one of the tumors that we talked about here, and that um, is about seven so years ago, it's a terrible type of brain tumor. And I knew that it was very bad. And I did what most people would do. You frantically search the scientific literature for options. And, uh, you know, with glioblastoma, you very quickly discover that there's very little room for optimism. Well, inevitably, uh, Googling brings up a host of miracle cures, ranging from herbal remedies and electronic gizmos to coffee enemas, cutting edge, breathtaking, more powerful than any drug Western medicine can offer, bombshell report. These are the kind of phrases that you often encounter. There are stories of stunned doctors who watch tumors disappear in just two weeks and accounts of patients who fail to improve with dangerous chemo and agonizing surgery, but experienced a miraculous recovery after opting for some little known natural serum in a tiny vial that was the, has the power to crush the billion dollar chemo and radiation industry. Uh, to find out what that is, you're urged to watch a video and to do so quickly, quote, before the government conspiring with Big Pharma will force its removal. But after you've invested close to an hour, you learn that you have to purchase a book or some newsletter or in order to have the, the secret uh, revealed. And it really is bothersome, sickening to see uh, how the charlatans try to take advantage of, of people. Uh, another report I found described a man whose body remained riddled with tumors after eight brutal months of chemotherapy and had already bought a grave before every single tumor in his body was obliterated. It costs to find out how. Then there are maverick physicians who claim to, to answer the Hippocratic Oath, not drug companies, and quote, blow the lid off big pharma's attempts to suppress a treatment proven to be more effective than 19 of their best-selling drugs, but without side effects. There are numerous such websites featuring various censored cures all claiming to have evidence that is being blocked from publication by drug companies trying to protect their turf. Right. And I received numerous emails from well-meaning people about treatments to explore, ranging from hemp oil and alkaline water to the amazing Amasua biodisc that promises to cleanse chakras. One was called the light-induced enhanced selective hyperthermia device seemed interesting enough to look into, but what I found uh, was not pretty. It was actually a scheme cooked up by Antonella Carpenter, uh, who at that time, uh, when I read about this, was an Oklahoma septuagenarian alternate practitioner, uh, no longer with us. She has passed away since. She was not a physician, but she had some training in physics. She claimed to cure cancer by injecting a tumor with a saline solution of food coloring and walnut hull extract, followed by heating the area with a laser. The treatment she maintained was 100% effective with no side effects. 
Of course, any claim of 100% efficacy is a hallmark of quackery, since no drug of any kind works in such a foolproof fashion. Even worse, Carpenter urged patients to stay away from oncologists and sometimes told them their cancer had been killed, which was not the case. As often happens, quacks unearth some legitimate process and then twist it out of proportion to hatch a money-making scheme. In this case, the legitimate process is photodynamic therapy. In general, the treatment of cancer involves some process by which cancer cells are destroyed while normal cells suffer less damage. Unfortunately, it isn't possible to avoid collateral damage completely, and cancer treatment via radiation or drugs is always burdened with side effects. In photodynamic therapy, the idea is to introduce a photosensitizer, a chemical when activated by light, interacts with oxygen to convert it into a very reactive form known as singlet oxygen. This can destroy cells. The photosensitizer can be introduced intravenously, followed by treating the tumor with long wavelength light via an optical fiber. Alternately, the photosensitizer can be injected directly into a tumor and then the area exposed to light. In either case, singlet oxygen is produced only within the tumor, minimizing damage to normal tissue. The process is applicable to certain types of tumors and is certainly not a cure-all for cancer. It is this therapy that was mangled by Antonella Carpenter, who, according to investigators, cheated cancer patients out of their money and gave them false hope. In spite of any evidence of her treatment having efficacy, supporters sprang to her side, claiming that her conviction on 29 counts of fraud was carried out by a kangaroo court influenced by, quote, the greedy and invictive genocidal maggots who control the cancer industry and have the FDA and courts in their back pocket. They go on to say that the medical mafia is hard at work twisting the truth and vilifying Dr. Carpenter and any other allopathic practitioners of natural or alternative treatments as quacks. <laughs> There's more. They say, Dr. Carpenter was vindictively targeted by the medical mafia and their Gestapo goons at the FDA for successfully curing dozens of cancer patients. No, she was targeted for subjecting cancer patients to a treatment that did not work and was claiming she had cured them. That is evil. The truth is, there is no conspiracy to keep effective cancer treatments from the public. Such allegations are an insult to the thousands of researchers and physicians dedicated to solving the problem of this complex disease. As I well know, there's no real magic, only clever tricks to create the illusion that there is. Unfortunately, uh, some cancers just defy treatment and glioblastoma is one of those. Other treatments, there has been much more progress. Uh, you have probably heard some very significant advances in the treatment of breast cancer, for example. And uh, conditions such as uh, childhood leukemia, uh, which used to be a, a death sentence, now have extremely good outcomes, all thanks to the work of researchers such as the two that you heard from uh, here today. And of course, there are many others working around the world and at the McGill Goodman Cancer Research Institute here at, at McGill. And uh, small steps 
as I said, are being taken to conquering disease. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, there have been very, very significant improvements in surgical outcomes, in chemotherapeutic uh, outcomes, in radiation outcomes. Uh, obviously, not what we would like to see in, in totality. Uh, obviously, the goal is to cure this disease, not to just extend life. And in many cases, that can be done, especially with surgery when something is, uh, is caught in time. Early diagnosis really is, is the key. Uh, but uh, research is extremely important, and it is absolutely nonsense to say that there's some so kind of conspiracy to keep effective treatments from patients. But unfortunately, desperate patients and their desperate uh, uh, mates will do things that they never thought they would ever do. Desperation drives people to, to do strange things. So we need to keep a lid on the quackery that is associated with cancer and certainly open the gates to research such as uh, being done by the two uh, young researchers you heard from here today. Well, that's it. Uh, we have run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.